Hello, and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand, here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Julia. Uh, anything uh, Anything new in your world? Let me think. Um, <laughs> uh, not, not too much, apart from we have two new babies in the house. <gasps> Uh, which you know a little bit about. Um, so Not having two they're, at once. Two at once, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turns out two babies is more work than one baby at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought? Is it is it linear? Is it twice as much work? I think it's less than twice as much work uh, so far. But, you know, we're going on a month and everyone's doing well. Um, but I should say if I if my thoughts are disjointed or I don't know what to say, then I hope you and our dear listeners will cut me a little bit of slack because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have, I have parent brain times, times two. Yeah. Uh, understood. So on the docket for today is talking about the process of scientific publishing. So this episode is not going to be about, uh, scientific writing. I think we have at least an episode of content to say about the process of writing and the choices we make as writers and things like that. Um, but this is uh, uh, more about the, the process of, of publishing work. And so, you know, Julie and I both have quite a few years of experience writing manuscripts and reviewing manuscripts and, and serving as editors for manuscripts. And so uh, part of our goal today is just to sort of, you know, talk about what it's like from each of those perspectives and maybe how our experiences there have helped us as an author um, and sort of, you know, what did we wish we had known or what would have been helpful to know earlier in our careers? One sort of, you know, big caveat as we start is that both Julie and I are going to um, talk in the first person, but also sort of combine experiences that we've had and that our colleagues have had and stories we've had. So we're not going to be giving away any uh, we're not going to be giving away any privileged information about specific papers or anything like that. Uh, and so if it seems like we are, just know that we're also making some stuff up. But it's it's true. But, you know, the, the <laughs> details have been changed to protect the innocent and, and things like that. I should also say, um, uh, you know, nothing we say is the official opinion of any journal that we've reviewed or edited for or anything like that. This is just our sort of general take on the field and, um, you know, pros and cons of, of what we've seen. Is, is that a fair is that a fair enough statement? Yes, absolutely. I like I like starting with uh, the general disclaimer that we might make stuff up. That's great. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. We when should I, probably start every every episode like that. Like just so you know, <laughs> this is mostly true, but also it might be totally made up. So when I tell my story about my many publications in science and nature, right. you'll have no way of knowing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for my fourteenth nature paper I did have some problems <laughs> with it. Uh, uh, I, I have been rejected from both those journals. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. We, you know what? We should start a club. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was, sorry. That, that, that long, awkward pause was like the pain of rejection. Like, it's, actually, it's not funny. But it's okay. Um, w- w- yeah. What should, so maybe what we should start with, we're not talking about writing, mm-hmm. but I think um, picking a journal is actually a, a good topic because it's one um, – Anyway, it, it, it's an important part of the process. You have to pick a journal at some point before you submit it. And I think different people really have different approaches to this. Mm-hmm. So so what's your approach? Like, what's your approach for picking a paper and what are the things that go into that decision? Yeah. So um, one of the pieces of advice that I got in grad school was pick your journal first and then write the 
write your paper to to kind of fit that journal. Um, and and that and I and I don't agree with that, or at least I'll say that's not what I do anymore. That's not what works for me. Um, what I do now is I write the paper kind of without thinking much about where it's going um, to be the paper that I want it to be. And then after I have written it, I kind of take a step back and say, okay, this is the paper I want it to be. What kind of journal does does this fit at? So mm. the, the picking of the journal usually comes pretty late in the process for me. And what do you think about, like when you're looking at your the paper you want it to be, and then you think about what journal to send it to. What are the things that you're considering in that process? Yeah. Um, well, so some is how how like general interest I think it's likely to be. Um, you know, if it's something that is more kind of esoteric or specific, I'm more likely to send it to kind of a more focused journal. Um, and the things that I think have broader reaching uh, uh, appeal, I might try to send somewhere um, more general. Um, I've also in recent years started thinking a lot about the the values that journals have and how I feel about those values. Um, so for instance, I no longer publish in journals that are run by Elsevier. Um, there has been a lot written about some of the problems, the objections that people have raised to Elsevier, and we can put a, a, a link in the show notes. There's a nice piece that Tal Yarconi wrote um, a few years ago about why he doesn't publish with Elsevier um, that kind of inspired some of my feelings on that. Um, so I've also been trying to publish more in journals, uh, that, uh, value open science practices, um, and in journals where I can publish open access, um, if, if I'm able to. So some of it's about content, some of it's about more kind of like, uh, um, values. Yeah. How I, mm-hmm. how I feel about the journals and, and their missions. Mm-hmm. So how much does the audience, like, do, do you think about the audience of a specific journal? So for example, like um, PLOS One is an open access journal um, that's pretty broad. Uh, and so you might think of it as broad interest, but, you know, there's lots of psychology stuff that gets published there compared to like Journal of Experimental Psychology, which, which seems more focused. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, how much do you think about who's reading the journal? Yeah, you know... I don't know. Maybe maybe this is like me revealing my own ignorance, but I don't think about that that much because I think like the way that we think about like who's reading a journal is somewhat antiquated, right? Like I I, I think very few people are like, oh great, here I got my paper or even digital copy of this journal. Now I'm going to sit down and read it cover to cover, mm-hmm. right? Like most of the ways that I find out about papers are not because I have found it through the journal, but because I've seen it on Twitter or somebody's linked to it, or, you know, I get a Google Scholar alert that someone that whose work I'm interested in has, has been published. Um, and so I, I guess I don't think about that a ton. Mm-hmm. I'll be, I'm going to be very interested to hear your perspective on this. Well, so let's, let me, um, let's come back to that. Cause I do okay. think that's something that's changed over the, well, since I got into this. So in the last 15 or 20 years, I think that has totally changed um, just with the availability of online online paper. So, mm-hmm. so let's come back to that. Um, it's interesting. So I actually have uh, a, a different v- way of doing it. I, I really tend to do um, the thing that you were advised to do and, and don't do, which is I, I think about the journal when I'm writing the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and not always the – it doesn't have to be the specific journal, but sort of the general – like how, like, yeah, the general audience really is like, who's reading my paper. So whether it shows up, regardless of what journal it shows up in, I usually have the audience in mind. 
But to me, those two are often linked. So for, mm. so this is very specific to what I do, but um, we do a lot about, um, you know, hearing loss and aging and speech processing. And if I send it to a journal that is, you know, traditionally more focused on hearing, like the journal Ear and Hearing, um, then I tend to write an introduction that like assumes a certain set of background knowledge about hearing, but mm-hmm. then focuses on like maybe there's less background knowledge about brain networks. As I'll explain sure. that. Whereas if if I'm thinking, oh, this is going to go to the Journal of Neuroscience or something um, more general, then I might feel like, oh, I have to explain the hearing stuff also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously, you can always rewrite a paper, and I, you know, I've rewritten, I've done substantial re- rewrites of many, many papers, but. I just for the first submission, it really helps me to think about who I'm writing for. Mm-hmm. And it could be in your, I think you're, I mean, that is also compatible with your approach that I could just be like, who do I want to write this for and not think about the journal and just sort of write the paper I want to write. But in practice, I think it really helps me to think about um, where it's going to end up. Yeah, you know, and, and I wonder one, one kind of difference between our work is that um, my papers are always pretty like behavioral and cognitive mm-hmm. uh, and don't tend to have much of a clinical angle or much of a neuroscience angle. And so that might be kind of an, like an area-specific thing too where you can reach more audiences so you have to think about them more carefully. Whereas, you know, the same the same people are going to read mine n- no matter where it is. Right. Uh, and so I can maybe think a bit less about that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to your um the point about sort of how this has changed over the years. So mm-hmm. um, you know, w- without giving my age away, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my upper, upper late thirties plus a little bit. Uh, so when I was in graduate <laughs> school, I, I remember clearly every year we got a, uh, we uh, PhD students, we got a library photocopy card that was loaded with $50 or maybe it was $55. Uh, and, you know, uh, copies were like I don't know. I don't remember that. One cent a page, five cents a page. And so if I found a, a reference to an article that I wanted to read, I would literally walk over to the library, find the journal in the stacks, pull it out, laboriously copy it one page at a time on the copier with my copy card. But I couldn't copy every article because I didn't want to pay for copies. I didn't want to run out of copies, right? And I would get <laughs> I would get it and I would staple it. And then I would go back to my office and I had this file a uh, file drawer, file cabinet full of all my papers alphabetized. And I had, you know, by last name. So there would be a, you know, appeal folder and a, a strand folder and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would lovingly, after I read it, I would put it in that file folder because I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to have to go back to the library and get it again. And so when I'm running a paper and I'm like, oh, I have to look up that reference by so-and-so, I would go to my, you know, f- file cabinet and like pull out the paper and like read it. Um, which of course seems so ridiculous now, right? And so, mm-hmm. in that day, I think it was actually very important, like what journal you published in, because different libraries had different subscriptions. You had to be—it was a physical copy, and people actually like subscribed to journals. So I also remember, I was so proud of myself. I said, you know what? I'm a psychologist. I need to read the Journal of Experimental Psychology. And I was an APA member, um, American Psychological Association, and you can, you know, subscribe to the journals as a person. And so I, I subscribed to Journal of Experimental Psychology, and it was delivered to my mailbox, and I put it in my office on the shelf, like every volume. And you know what? <laughs> I probably read 
like one of those. I had this whole, yeah, right. I mean, you know, this is, uh, you know, anyway, the, the, I was naively optimistic that I was going to read all these and learn the field. And, um, and I, I didn't, I did, they just sat on the shelf. So that didn't work, but you can, but you know, kind of to your point, like there are people who would subscribe to journals and like leaf through the table of contents. And if there's a relevant paper, you read it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I, I do get, I get e contents alerts for a lot of journals um, but honestly, I don't have time to look at them. So in theory, I would want to, I do, there, there are journals I would like kind of monitor because they tend to have relevant papers, mm-hmm. but in practice, I just, I don't. So I, I do think these days it matters a lot less where you publish in terms of people seeing it. Um, and I tend to just like you, I think I tend to prioritize places where there's open access because I do think, uh, I mean, there's actually some data on this too, but just also my intuition is that um, if a journal is open access, like you're going to get more people reading your paper because they don't have mm-hmm. to monkey around with paywalls and institutional logins and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seems super important to me, but I don't worry as much about the journal for access. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is another, there is another layer to this, which is, um, you know, a kind of a prestige associated with a journal and I think the the tide is shifting a little bit in that there's a lot of intellectual recognition that we should evaluate a study on its own merits and not where it's published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also recognition that like fancy journals it doesn't mean it's actually a better study. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we live in the real world and lots of people do associate value with where a, a paper is published. And so I think about that a little bit. I mean, I, I can't help it. I do think about it for my own papers. But I, I think about it for like trainees, right? So if you're a graduate student and you're thinking about applying to postdocs or a postdoc and thinking about faculty positions, you know, I don't know. In a perfect world, you could just send everything to a preprint server and your work would be evaluated on its own merits. But in real life, it matters if you have a publication in a glam journal versus like a society journal, you know, mm-hmm. both reasonable choices, but like it still it still matters. So there's also this tension, I think, between like how we'd like the world to be and how it really is. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the more senior you are, the more freedom you have. And I, I think junior people still need to think about that stuff a little bit, at least to be aware of aware of the issues. Yeah. Yeah. As I have gotten further along in my career, um, I, I'm trying to care less about that stuff. I mean, you know, given all of the problems with impact factors. Um, well, we can put a, we can put some a link in the show notes too about all the things that are wrong with impact factors and, and why they're basically nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, um, uh, uh, well, by the time this airs, I will either have tenure or I won't. So I can, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and put a strong bet on you getting tenure, Julia. And if all right, you, if well, you don't get it, I'm going to come back and edit this out of the episode so that, you know, we don't, no one will know that I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm optimistic about you. We get yeah. a name for that. That's uh, that's called harking. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, no, but, uh, but, but, you know, um, uh, I, f- I feel like given that we know how flawed impact factors are as a metric for, for quality or, you know, kind of, kind of any kind of meaningful information, um, I'm, I'm really like focusing on trying to care less about that and and have my behavior influenced less by that um, and just publishing in journals that I that I believe in and I think are are, are doing good work mm-hmm. um, but I also recognize that that's a that's a trickier thing for people who are more more up and coming to mm-hmm. do 
Yeah, I mean, I, this is a bigger topic we can come back to, but I do think I have a lot of respect for people who are junior and who are really driven by ideals, and I think that's awesome. And I also think it's worth being realistic about about the landscape and um, and how that might impact your choices and or mm-hmm. your, your your options. And some people don't care, and so they say, you know, I'm only going to publish in you know, whatever open access journal and who cares about the consequences. And I, I really respect that, but I also think it's a very reasonable option to, um, to save some of that idealism for after you are a little bit more secure. Uh, the flip side of that is I think those of us who are more secure have more of an obligation to, to use that kind of privilege to, you know, to, to try out new journals and to support the journals we like. So I totally, I'm on, I'm totally on board with that. And I think that's something we need a little bit more of. I mean, I say this, like we're having this discussion, Julia, and I think you and I are sort of uh, largely on the same page about um, values we like in journals and, and sort of publishing and all of these things. But when I talk to senior colleagues, um, you know, not necessarily at my institution, but, but around the field, there are a lot of people who just uh, are, don't get it. I mean, uh, so I would, so I think that they're wrong. Maybe they're not wrong, but they definitely have a different perspective on things. And so a lot of times, a lot of times they are more senior, and a lot of times those are the people who are evaluating grants and promotion and tenure stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if Julie and I were evaluating everyone's um, tenure and promotion stuff, like you might have one decision, but if um, some grouchy old scientist uh, who doesn't believe in open access is evaluating it, you might have a different. Um, mm-hmm. experience, you know. So um, anyway, just just a thing. Well, and the other, I mean, and the other thing that, that you and I can do is when we are, you know, say reading applications for, for job candidates um, and the conversation goes to, oh, well, this person hasn't had a cell, uh, uh, what did they say? Science, nature, yeah. cell? Yeah. See? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, by the way, that is not a thing that they say at small liberal arts colleges. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, when those conversations happen, I look forward to having the opportunity to be vocal and say, I don't care about that. What I do care about is that they have a registered report or they have published mm-hmm. what I think mm-hmm. is a great, you know, pre-registered paper in, uh, in a journal that may not have as high an impact factor, but I think is a great paper. And right. so, you know. Yep. Yeah, no, I think I think we do right. Exactly, we all have we'll the chance to yeah. push around the the uh, where how people are evaluated to hopefully make it more positive. Okay, so that's how we pick a journal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how we pick a journal. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so having so uh, okay, okay, so we've picked a journal, and let's uh, let's pretend that the paper we've written is now appropriate for that journal, whatever that means, length of introduction and. And all that stuff, we're ready to yep. to submit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as you know, a common thing is then you you go to the journal website and you have to go through all the kind of stupid menus to you know enter all the information, and then they ask you for recommended reviewers. Mm-hmm. So, who do you put for that? Yeah. So, so the first thing that I do is I look at who I've cited a lot. Because mm-hmm. probably they're going to be interested in it if it's building on their work. Um, and then I also will think about who do I know is doing similar stuff, um, you know, maybe from conference presentations or, or papers that I've read recently, you know, just thinking about who's going to be who's going to be interested in this and who's going to know um, a lot about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I also, I, I try to be mindful about um, kind of diversity issues, gender balance. Um, so I, you know, when I'm, when I'm choosing reviewers, I'm, I'm especially thinking about people um, that the editor might not know of, maybe are up and coming or might just, you know, kind of not, not be on their radar um, to try and give them opportunities to, uh, to review also. I think that's all good. I, I, I can say, so as an editor, the, my, my favorite papers to get as an editor are those really close to my specialties. Mm-hmm. And so for those papers, I don't really need suggestions. I, yeah. you know, I read the paper like this. I, I get what they're talking about. I know the theoretical background or whatever. And I, you know, and, and quite often if there are suggestions, there are people I would think of anyway, but it's, it's right. nice to have. And that's all fine. But I could think of, I could think of five to 10 people off the top of my head anyway. Um, and in those cases, I guess like more junior people who I might not know are helpful, but, but not really required. Mm-hmm. I will say, um, you know, again, broadly speaking. So I hear sometimes editors get papers that are not in their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they are quite far and, you know, it makes sense. Every journal um, especially journals that are broad, they can only have a certain number of editors. And so if a paper comes in that really doesn't match anyone, you still want to try to give it a fair review and it has to get assigned to someone. And so um, when the papers come in that are very far from what I'm used to seeing, I have no idea who to ask off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so suggestions are really helpful. I In those cases, I often personally, I will... Um, typically go with at least one of the suggested reviewers. Um, and if that person says no, hopefully they'll recommend a couple of people. So there's sort of, it's sort of an entree into the network of people doing similar work. Uh, and then again, for, for topics I don't know well, I read the manuscript and I see who they've cited. And so that's, that will point me towards some relevant papers, hopefully. Uh, and then I'll like Google scholar search the topic and see who's published on stuff recently. So mm-hmm. I, I don't like editing those papers because I feel less qualified to make my own decision. Like, I don't know if you're studying, um, oh, whatever, you know, the, the emotional impact of whatchamacallit, blah, 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 is not what I do. I don't know if your work is theoretically novel. I really need the reviewers to tell me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I don't know who the best reviewers are because it's not my field. Mm-hmm. And so obviously I can ask, there's lots of ways around this, but it's more challenging so all of which is to say, in those cases, I really do appreciate um, suggested reviewers, and I, I do at least look at those people and see if they're appropriate. So I think that's and, – and when you're – sorry, the point of this is as an author, you don't always know who your editor is going to be, and mm-hmm. you don't always know how close they are to your field. So you might assume that they're going to know all the same people you know, and like sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. So I think mm-hmm. I think being thoughtful about who you suggest is really helpful. One other actually bit of advice here is a lot of times people will uh, do exactly what you said. Authors will look at who they've cited and then suggest that person, which is a good strategy, except if that person is like one of the very senior people in the field, Mm -hmm. that means they are very, very busy. And that means just statistically, they are not going to review your paper. Mm -hmm. They probably review some papers, I'm sure. Uh, so I, I won't I won't name names, but there are people who often get suggested for certain things, and I can't ask them every time. I can't ask them twice a month to review another paper, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they're getting asked by other people too. So sometimes I will email them 
explicitly and say, look, I know you don't have time. Do you have someone in your lab who's you know, like a postdoc mm-hmm. who, who mm-hmm. would be who would be interested in this because, you know, the, the work. But honestly, it's just hard to get a response from very busy people. So mm-hmm. just something to consider if, if you suggest five reviewers and they're all like senior people who are traveling around the world and directing institutes like none of them are going to say yes. And so your, your suggestions are less helpful, um, mm-hmm. you know, and less helpful to you because because they're not going to do it. So think about, you know, junior junior people typically have a little more time, like not not necessarily, you know, postdocs are fine, assistant professors, associate professors, but not the director of a big institute, probably. Maybe maybe this is content for another time, but I have I have questions and thoughts about busyness at different stages Mm. but i think i think that's i think that's for another time um i have another question yeah how often so i have not uh i have not been an an editor for a journal um there's this box that pops up when i'm submitting my paper that is are there any reviewers you want to exclude or Mm -hmm. you're like non-preferred reviewers Mm -hmm. uh and i have never put anything in that box is that a thing people do is that a thing you have done or like you have seen people do I've certainly seen people do it. Um, Is it common? Oh, I, I don't know if I could give you. Certainly, not everyone does it. I would say, I would say it's uncommon, but not rare. Like maybe ten okay. percent of the. Okay. Art, mm-hmm. I'm totally guessing ten percent. Mm-hmm. Um, quite often, people. So I don't know that I've ever. I think actually, I can. Once I put someone in there because a co-author suggested it. Okay. Um, it was someone they had just had bad review experiences from before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you and know, they knew that because the person had signed their reviews. I or, believe, I believe yeah. either they, they officially signed it or it was, they had a discussion at a, somehow they, they were pretty sure they knew who the reviewer was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so also as an editor, I never, I never, ever, ever reveal who reviews a paper, mm-hmm. but sometimes reviewers will review, reveal themselves. So they might sign their review or they might not sign their review, but if they see you at a conference, they might come up and say, oh, by the way, I reviewed that paper. Yeah. Um, and so that's up to them if they think that's if that's okay or not. Um, I appreciate it when people tell me, but I also officially, maybe we shouldn't endorse that, but it happens. So sometimes uh-huh. you do know who your reviewers are, like for real, or sometimes you just guess. Uh-huh. Um, I don't use it very often. Most of the times when people use it, it's people, it's, it's they, they um, put in people who are doing a uh, directly competing work or, or who they think are doing directly competing work, mm-hmm. or they will put in people who they think have a, a, a you know, theoretically opposed position. Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience at, at the journals that I've worked at or edited for a lot of times, the, the people they put in are not people who are on my radar anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it hasn't really affected me. I, I generally respect the author's requests um, because there are so many reviewers out there. And if they know better than I, who might not give the uh, paper a fair review. Um, mm-hmm. And so if they only put down two people, I think, I mean, if, you know, I'll, I'll pick some other people and, and hopefully it will not be a big deal. I have heard though, um, I think on Twitter or through the grapevine or both um, some editors explicitly ignore those requests and some mm-hmm. editors will pick those people on purpose um which I, I don't agree with but but people but some editors do it and so you don't know you know when you so if, if you're if you're in the um 
position of maybe not knowing who the best reviewers are, and this person puts down two people because they have a different theoretical viewpoint, you might think as an editor, oh, I would like to get the perspective of someone with a different theoretical viewpoint, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know those people before, but you've very helpfully told me. Um, So again, I don't, I don't endorse that, but I know that it happens. And so I think you have to use those boxes with care. Um, yeah. But in, in my experience, I don't think that's really affected stuff much. And I typically don't put people in there. Mm-hmm. I like your idea, Julia, of when you're asking for recommended reviewers, thinking about balance um, in kind of diversity. And, mm-hmm. and so as a shorthand, maybe not only straight white men, uh, straight white senior people in the field, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's useful because, again, editors uh, are subject to the same biases as everyone else and when asked to think of a a list of 10 people are going to tend as a group to go for um sort of more straight white men um Mm -hmm. and so i think you know suggesting other people who are you know who don't fit to that is actually is actually really helpful for the field because you know we want a diversity of reviewers and it's it's a valuable experience to review so we want to spread that out Um, so i think thinking about that as a author when you suggest reviewers is really useful. And I can tell you as an editor, I, I think about that when I'm picking reviewers, but I also, I'm not aware of a journal that has a policy about it. So, Mm -hmm. so one thing that's funny, this is a little off, off that topic, but most, uh, there's a lot of freedom given to individual editors at, at most journals, at least the ones that I've, you know, have some experience with, uh, firsthand or secondhand. And so there are, yes, there are official journal policies, but how those get communicated and how those get implemented really varies a lot from journal to journal. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of, there is a lot of freedom for individual editors to you know, implement things how they see fit. So I, you know, I, I like to think we're all doing our best to, to do a good job, but that can look really different. So I, I think it can be frustrating as an author to not have a consistent kind of message from the journal. And I think it'd be nice to improve on that. But the reality is that, uh, you know, some of the treatment just depends on which editor you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you ever, and what do you think about um, suggesting reviewers who are like senior level grad students? So for better or for worse, some authors uh, do not like getting reviewed by graduate students because they don't think um, they would say that in the context of what's supposed to be peer review, that if someone is too junior it's not really, they don't have the appropriate experience to evaluate um, something written by someone with a lot more experience. And so, you know, before we, before we get too grumpy with those people, you know, you could imagine it's a, it's a continuum, right? So like if I read a paper and it's reviewed by a, um, a really great junior high school student, I think everyone would agree that that's not really peer review, right? And then like high school, undergraduate, graduate students. So at some point, it, it seems like more like peer review and where we draw that line, uh, people might disagree about. In practice, so a lot of times graduate students and postdocs provide really thoughtful and detailed reviews. And sometimes uh, I would say m- a lot of the time they spend more time on a paper. So that can be really useful. So what I usually do, I think it's fine to, to suggest those people. Uh, what I've done as an editor is if, if there's a graduate student doing a review, I will uh, be in touch with the PI of the graduate student and just say, hey, can you just look this over before they submit it or work with them before they submit it and, mm-hmm. and kind of leave it to, to, to them to work it out. 
for a really good graduate student, probably the PI doesn't have to provide much input, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. But you could imagine the, the first time you ever do a review of the graduate student, probably you're going to do something that could be improved. And so it's a chance for you to learn, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not like you're a graduate student, you don't know how to do a review, and all of a sudden you get your PhD and you magically are a good reviewer. Mm-hmm. Like you have to practice it. And so I like totally. giving people the the chance to do that. But I think doing it in a mentored way is is the best way to do it. Um, so again, I often explicitly ask people if there's someone in their lab, including a trainee who would be appropriate. And if it's a graduate student, I, I ask them to, you know, look it over before submitting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, the, the thing about like, you know, a continuum at w- and at what point does someone become a peer? I think that's a, that's interesting. I haven't quite, I hadn't thought about it in that way. Um, and, and there's also, um, uh, uh there's, I don't want to come down too hard on the side of like, I don't believe in rank because mm-hmm. if I look at my own trajectory, like I am better at my job now than I was 10 years ago when I was a grad student. Right. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's certainly true. Um, but I think there are, there are, I mean, I know a ton of grad students who are very smart and very thoughtful and in some ways like more, um, uh, are spending more time thinking about statistics and experiment design and mm-hmm. methodology. Um, and so, you know, I think they have a, a really valuable um, opinion to offer too. Well, there are a lot of full professors who are lousy reviewers. Yeah. Um, and so definitely there's not, uh, you know, anyway, yes, I would, ra- I would much rather have a thoughtful review from a graduate student <laughs> who has fewer years of experience mm-hmm. than, a, a, you know, a, a not very good review from someone senior. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, thankfully for me, but I've had reviews that are just like a short paragraph of like three sentences that are just like, it, it doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. Three sentences is not enough to help me, yeah, right? Yeah. This work is very good. It should be accepted. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it tells me nothing. Or right. this is horrible. The authors clearly don't know anything about the theory. You know, we should reject it. Well, that's yeah. also not helpful. And mm-hmm. so those are totally worthless. And so I would much rather have. You and know, my money's a, on those are not coming from grad students. <laughs> I have never gotten one of those from a graduate student. That's right. Um, so, yeah, there are better reviewers and worse reviewers. And I think um, and lots of great junior people, including grad students, are good reviewers. So I, I want to include them uh, as much as possible. But within within a, with a little bit of context of understanding um, authors and also that it, it kind of depends on the paper too, I think, honestly, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Some papers that are more expansive and really um, might be steeped in certain kinds of theoretical discussions benefit from having a, a senior person. Sure. But that's why we have multiple reviewers, right? So yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So I think that's a, it's a great thing to do. I also think, so if you're a graduate student um, or well, anyway, if you're anyone, if you're a person who would like to review more, regardless of what stage of career you're at, uh, you can definitely volunteer yourself. If you're in a lab, talk to your uh, PI and, and say, or a friend of a PI or something and say, hey, if you get requests to review such and such type of manuscript, I'd love to help out. Um, sometimes PIs will officially take on the request, but then share it with you and work work through it with you as sort of a really side-by-side thing as opposed to just throwing you into do-it-yourself. Um, I mean, editors are always looking for good reviewers, so... Honestly, if you don't get asked and you want to do it, it's probably just because, you know, bad luck, your name hasn't been on a list, but there are opportunities. So I encourage people to 
be vocal if they want to review more. I think we could probably have a whole episode on reviewing if we wanted. Oh, I think you're right. We could, we could, but let's, um, but let's not right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we have a journal. Well, we have a paper, we have a journal, we have reviewers. Um, now one of the things that we have to deal with in that, uh, online system, in addition to reviewers is uploading a cover letter. Mm -hmm. Um, what are you supposed to, why do you have to write a cover letter? I don't know. (laughs) Is it just, is it just because olden times? I think, I, I think it is largely a carryover from olden times when you would put your manuscript in the mail and it would show up. And in your cover letter, you would have to say all the things that are now captured by the online system. And and even like make it clear that this is a manuscript you are submitting. Right. It's because a, otherwise, man, who knows what it could be. Uh, right. It's not under review anywhere else, you know, um, right. whatever. Um, so I honestly, I, I always upload a cover letter. I've gone through different stages of how much time and effort I put into it. I think, I do think some journals value it more than others. And if I had to guess... Um, journals of broad interest or that have a lot of desk rejections, in other words, where the editor decides whether or not to send something out for review, potentially might benefit from this because it's your chance to explain in your own words why this is interesting. Mm-hmm. In most of the journals that I review for, it does not play a big role in what happens because um, I, 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 the cover for me, the cover letter comes up and I it shows up on my screen, and then I kind of close it and open up the actual manuscript. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I would rather like if you want to tell me what your paper is about, that should be in the abstract. If you right. want to tell me why it's interesting, if I can't tell from the introduction to your paper, then it's less convincing. So I do mm-hmm. think, I mean, most people do it. Most people do spend some time on it and try to have a little. Here's why this is interesting, but I don't really think it, um, in my experience, it doesn't really affect a lot. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that because my cover letters are always just like, dear editor, here's our paper. We'd like (laughs) you to publish it. It's interesting. Please find enclosed the enclosed. Please consider it for publication in your fine journal. Which which is totally fine. At least, again, at the the journals that I've worked with, that would not count against you at all. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're sending it to a glam journal, maybe they would get offended, but... um, you know, like normal journals, I think it's fine. All right. So we got a paper, we got a journal, we got a reviewer, we have kind of a cover letter. So once you submit an article, uh, you click the submit button and, um, and then what? And so then you wait. And so one question that comes up uh, is that like, well, how long do you wait? Like, when should you hear back? Right. And a lot of journals, well, so journals usually have a preferred timeline for reviewers. So if you get a review request, it will say, please return your review within one week. Please return your review within <laughs> two weeks, right? Or, or a month. I meant to say a month, right? A month. Um, a lot of times it's a month. Um, some journals are like, we value fast turnaround. So they ask for two weeks. Here's the thing. Uh, as an editor, I get a paper to publish. And very rarely do I have time to find reviewers the day you submit it. Uh, and sometimes it takes a couple of weeks to find those two reviewers. So even in the like the fastest of all possible worlds, I might find one reviewer on day one. And so your status will say it's under review. And you think, great. But that just means I found one reviewer and I'd have to find a second one. And sometimes, for whatever reason, it just takes forever 
to find people who have the time and who are appropriate. So it can take up to, okay, I'm not going to give a number because I don't want to embarrass journals. I've heard, I've heard tell from friends. uh, It can sometimes take a very long time to find reviewers, even when you're trying really hard as an editor. So you have to cut your editor some slack for actually finding the reviewers. And then reviewers, shockingly, are sometimes late with their reviews. And so then you have to nag them. There's the auto emails that the journal will send them to remind them. And then at some point as the editor, I'll start to email them directly and plead for their reviews and so on. Uh, And all of which is to say it can take a little while, right? And so um, I think I didn't realize until I started editing, like how long it can take to do all that stuff. I think usually that there is a danger uh, that your paper gets lost in the system, either like literally electronically lost. So I've had at least one paper that got submitted by authors and was never assigned to an editor. So it was just sitting Mm. there. I don't know how that happened, but, but no one knew. And so it wasn't until the authors wrote in and said, can we have an update on our paper that someone figured this out? Um, so, and the other thing that can happen is if you have an editor who is, you know, you get them at the wrong time of year and they're traveling to a conference and then they have a, a, another thing go on and then they get a cold and they're sick and, you know, editors are, are humans also. And so we don't always see the stuff as quickly as we could. And every time I get an email checking on the status of a paper, uh, that like I reprioritize, I feel guilty. I log in, I make sure, you know, if, if there's reviewers that are late, I'll nag the reviewers, if whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll try to take a look at it. I've got X number of papers and I can't give them all, all of my attention. But if you email me and ask for an update after a reasonable amount of time, I'll, I'll try to look at yours. So the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I personally have never been offended when I've been asked for an update on a paper. Some editors might be, I, but I think... I think most of them are used to it. And so you might get an answer that's like, we're working on it. Thank you for your question. Mm-hmm. But, but at least you know that like it's not lost in the system. So What's I, a, yeah, with a reasonable time. To, to start squeaking. I mean, definitely three months. Okay. Um, I think if you haven't heard by three months, you are totally entitled to do that. If you don't see any change in your status, like if it's like with editor and it hasn't gone for review after like a month, or probably even two weeks, but after a month, I think you could definitely ask. The other thing is a lot of journals have, um, you know, like administrative assistant type people. So when you email the journal, it doesn't go to the editor directly necessarily. It goes to the staff Mm. and the staff definitely will not get grumpy with asking for this stuff. And they can just log into the system and kind of see what the, what the progress is. So I would, you know, I would always be polite when you're emailing these people but I would not worry about sort of offending someone by asking for, you know, very nicely asking for an update. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a lot of times, you know, it's not going to, it doesn't always help, but it, it, it doesn't hurt. Yep. So then you've waited and you get that email that has all the letters and numbers in the subject line and you, it's so exciting. And then you click on it and it probably the first time says, we won't take it in its current form, mm-hmm. but here's a long list of things to fix. Um, we asked on Twitter what what questions people had about this process, and um, some of them we've addressed already. One of the ones that we got, though, was how do you go about the process of documenting and cataloging all of the changes that you have made based on, on what the reviewers ask? Because mm-hmm. um, this can be sometimes a really tedious process, right? If you get 
three, four reviewers, and they have really long, detailed reviews, and you're ending up typing out pages and pages of this is how we responded to each comment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's hard and tedious, and like it's hard for you to write. It's hard for everybody to read. So how do we go about that process? Well, one thing is, um, I think being a reviewer has helped me to be a better responder as an author, because mm-hmm. as a reviewer, I know what's helpful to me when I'm reading that letter, you know, back to me as a reviewer, like, what do I want to see? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and everyone's different. So in a way I, I'll tell you what I like and what I try to do, but, but that may not work for everyone. Um, as a reviewer, when I get, uh, when I'm seeing a revision of a manuscript, it's typically been a month or two or three since I read the paper. Yep. And I don't always remember what all of my comments were. And so I really like it. I, I mean, not, again, not everyone does it this way for good reason, but I really like it when the authors paste in my comment and then tell me how they addressed it. Because mm-hmm. uh, that tells me how, how did I phrase it and, and what did they do? And sometimes, and we can talk about this um, in a minute, sometimes what they did is nothing. And they say, yeah, we disagree with your comment. And that's fine. But then I can kind of see that. Mm-hmm. What I don't like is when things are overly summarized. So sometimes you'll get a response that's like, oh, the reviewers had some questions about the methods. Now these are clarified. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's not helpful at all. I have no idea what they changed, whether they track changes or not. I don't know. It's very annoying to read that. So mm-hmm. I, so as, as a reviewer, I like to see that detail. And typically, if it's a well-written paper already that had some issues, if you tell me what you changed, I don't have to reread the paper from scratch. I can just be like, oh, you fixed that. You fixed that. You disagree with me on that. That seems fine. Um, I can actually uh, evaluate a revision pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also true as an editor. I, I look through the response, and it's really helpful for me. I don't remember what the reviewer said to be reminded of what the specific comment was, not just like, you know, reviewers didn't like it, and now it's fixed. Um, that's mm-hmm. not helpful at all. So as an author... I typically will go, I will, I, I will do the, the tedious thing of paste in every comment verbatim that requires a response from every reviewer in order. And I go through and respond to each one. Now, a lot of times diff, two reviewers will pick up on the same thing. And so sometimes I will combine those into one response. More often what I'll do is I will respond in detail the first time. And then when the, the second reviewer says the same thing, I'll just say, well, you know, see my response above. Yep. So that, you know, you don't have to repeat, you, you don't, you, you want to save people's time and you don't want to, the other thing I don't, I try not to do and that I don't find helpful is, you know, a little minor comment, like, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe you should use a different term. And then the response is like a page and a half, <laughs> uh, a- explanation with quotes and references and a diagram about, about the, about whether they did or didn't do their response. No one cares. Just, mm-hmm. uh, you do have to kind of get to the point a little bit. So it is a balancing act, right? So, and that's where I feel like giving hard and fast advice is tricky, but if you're a reviewer and you see a lot of these responses, you kind of get a sense for what, what makes your job easier and what mm-hmm. doesn't. And, um, yeah, so do the thing that makes the reviewer's job easier. I also think a lot about the fact that, you know, if a reviewer raised some issue, that's probably something that a hypothetical future reader is going to have, you know, think of too. Right. Um, and so I try to not do much justifying of decisions in the response to reviewers, because if that's a thing that we have to think about and I have to defend or, you know, something like that, I want that to be in the paper where other people are going to encounter it too. Um, so those like, 
page long, here's why I'm making the choice that I'm making. Um, sometimes those belong in the review because, you know, because because uh, the reviewer is asking for something specific or mm-hmm. making an argument that you don't think that other people are going to make. Um, but a lot of times, if you've got something to justify, I, I like to justify it where where everybody has access to it. I agree. The other thing that I find is really helpful for, for paper reviews and for grant reviews, any kind of review, is really to give the reviewers the benefit of the doubt, even if they're grumpy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, even if the first time I read reviews, I typically am like, how could they not understand that thing? We made that very <laughs> clear, right? And then mm-hmm. I take a deep breath. Um, and then I then I think, well, you know, if it wasn't clear to them, maybe they were skimming, maybe they were tired. But our other readers might be tired or skimming too. And so I really try to like take the ownership. So if I think I explained it, one option is to tell the reviewer, this was already in there on page three, you know, you moron, how could you miss it? But actually, if they missed it, someone else is going to miss it too. And so I yep. really try very hard to, okay, I thought I explained it well. Can I explain it better? You know, mm-hmm. they ask a question that seems really obvious, like what was the point of the study? Which, you know, I get very offended by that, but I think, well, maybe maybe I could explain it better, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think trying to to give them the benefit of the doubt, even if they don't deserve it, is makes for a more productive revision. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I would say is there's no magic number to this, but I tell myself you basically to, to make your job easier, not getting into philosophical arguments or like, I don't know, being idealistic, but like just say yes to most of the, most of the responses, especially if they don't matter. Right. So try to uh, do something to, to address or to make a change for like, all of the comments, but one, I feel like you're allowed like one where you say, you know what, we're not going to do that, but mm-hmm. then you have to do everything else. Mm-hmm. I guess not a rule. And that doesn't always work. And sometimes they want you to do that one, but I don't know. I think if you address most of the comments, most reviewers are happy with that. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think the how much of the reviews do you actually, or how much of the things they ask you to change do you have to, um, is a question that I think people th- think about a lot. And I've heard students, you know, asking about this too. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I have really liked about switching to using open science practices like uh, pre-registering and uploading data and code are that it lets you push back on reviewers asking you to do additional analyses or explore things. Um, it gives you like some some good reason to, to not to do those if you don't think that they're justified. Mm-hmm. So we have started saying like, we prefer not to do that analysis. It wasn't part of our pre-registered plan, but the data and code are freely available. And if anyone else wants to do those, they are welcome to. Right. I like that. No, mm-hmm. I, exactly. Cause you're not uh, in the old days. If you didn't do the analysis, your code wasn't available. No one would ever do the analysis. Right. Mm-hmm. And now you have the option. If someone really cares, they can go look at it and that's great. Right. And that's you can the whole do whatever point. you want with it. Right. But that's not what this study is about. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to wrap up in just a minute. I wanted to pass on one other bit of what I hope is helpful advice, but people can take it or leave it, which is for most people submitting a manuscript in mid to late December will guarantee you a longer response time than other times of the year. And that's because for lots of people, there are holidays that are celebrated and between semester time that people take off work and emails don't get checked and so on. Uh, And so this is not like a philosophical moral issue. Like I know that there are people who um, don't celebrate holidays this time of year or who don't have a break from their term this time of year and all that, but just 
empirically, it takes forever to find reviewers uh, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So if you have a paper, now if it's going to make you feel better to get it submitted this time of year so you don't have to worry about it, by all means do it, but it's going to take longer to get reviewers. So I might suggest just wait until January and then everyone will be back at their desk and ready to take on reviews for the new year. And I bet you're going to get a quicker turnaround. I have a moral and philosophical thing that I want to end on. Uh And that is that uh, writing is hard. Science is hard. Writing is hard. Submitting is hard. Um, And I advocate that you should celebrate at every step of this process. So when you submit the paper, you have a big celebration. When you get reviews back and then submit the next draft, you have a big celebration. When it gets accepted, you celebrate. And when it actually like comes out and is published, you celebrate with the page proofs. Don't hold back. Don't wait to celebrate until it's all the way done because then you have missed many opportunities for celebrating the hard work that you've put in. I totally agree. I mean, every one of those stages takes a lot of work and effort and is worth celebrating. I, th- that's also something I like about preprints, by the way. And we should we can talk about preprints another time because that's an in- important part of this whole um, process. But but these days, once I get the preprint up, then like the journal review almost seems not mm-hmm. necessary. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still these days it is necessary. Maybe someday it won't be. But it almost feels like we we did a thing that we were proud of and we can share. And that's the cool part. And then it's kind of like, eh, like if the journal takes an extra week, um, maybe that's less important. And I, I obviously from in my career stage, an extra week doesn't matter so much. Um, at other stages of my career, that would stress me out. So I, I get it. But I, I really like the the preprint celebration seems like a big milestone. Mm-hmm. Hey, listeners, thanks so much for joining us. And you know what? We appreciate having you here so much. We want to give you a present. It's a juice and squeeze sticker. If you'd like one, go to juiceandsqueeze.net slash contact and send us your address and we will pop some cool swag in the mail for you. Yep. They look great. I I can say that because Julia um, designed them so I can give her all the credit. They look (laughs) awesome. We'll be happy to send you a few. Also on that contact page, you can send us your questions, comments, feedback, anything like that. We love love hearing from you guys. And also on our website, you can find show notes for this episode and every other episode. Julia, what is our website again? Juiceandsqueeze.net. That's the one. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. And we'll be back again soon with a little bit more. Bye-bye.